It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Elaine Pagels didn't grow up with religion, but she has devoted her career to writing about it. In the Gnostic Gospels, she deciphers secret agent texts. Her latest work, Why Religion, is a memoir about her personal story of immense loss. In her writing, she says, she's trying to uncover why people seek religious faith in the 21st century. I realize that my work on the study of religion is a kind of yoga that I, that I work with and play with and argue with and engage imaginatively. And it really works on me when I work on it. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Words author series, Winter Words. When Elaine Pagels was a teenager, she became a born-again Christian, but her newly found religion was short-lived. She explains why later in the show. Her brush with Christianity led to a life of inquiry. Years later, I thought, wait a minute, what hit me? I mean, was it Christianity? Was it religion? What was it that seemed so powerful about all that? Now Pagels teaches religion at Princeton. She joined another religion professor, Kate Bowler, on stage in Aspen in February. Bowler teaches at Duke Divinity School and is the author of two books, Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel, and Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. The latter is a memoir that chronicles her battle with stage 4 colon cancer. Bowler and Pagel sit down with Gina Murdoch, a writer, yoga teacher, and community organizer. Here's Murdoch. So welcome, both of you. I want to start by reading something really fairly serious, because this is serious stuff that we're talking about here. I found Kate on Instagram, because that's one of the ways I research people, and I wanted to read something to you. This is from Kate. So, Tobin, who never loved me, obviously, signed me up for ski lessons against my will. And Zach, child. We were both thrilled. But I have been thinking a lot about fear lately, and I realized that not wanting to go careening down a massive mountain is just our body's way of preventing our impending death. But also, that facing fear can be incredibly joyful when you realize that you are so grateful to be afraid. It means you are so wondrously alive. And then thank God for that. So indeed, thank God. That is from uh, Kate. And, and I read that, and I thought, we have to ask you how your first day skiing went, first and foremost. <laughs> Tell us. I was, was so terrible. Yeah. I mean, also, I accidentally, maybe just being a writer, like, narrate my experience to myself. Or like, this is not going that well. I hope people below know this. <laughs> so there was a lot of description. And wow. Well, because we're in Aspen and you shared that, I thought it was really important. And then I wanted you to share with us when you brought your skis back to the rental technician and you said, um, you know, that you were really grateful that you didn't perish on the mountain. What did what did he say to you? Well, I guess I only really noticed this when I got sick is how many like social scripts there are around whether you're cheerful or suffering in the appropriate way. So I went to return my skis and I was like, I did not perish on this mighty mountain. And he was like, whoa, don't bring any of that negative energy in here. (laughs) 
And, Whoa. <laughs> and then I was like trying to decide if I should be the worst. And then I was like, oh, I should be the worst. And then I was like, well, I mean, that idea that words have causal power is really only about 100 years old in America. But I, I anyway, I had talked him into free ski rentals for the next day. But, and I was like, word power is real. <laughs> so it was great. Yeah, the Spoken causal relationship. Like a religion. <laughs> Yeah, you always have a historical moment where you're deciding if you're going to ruin the party or if you're awful at small talk. I'm pretty sure you you blew his mind, I'm sure. He's like, what (laughs) are you talking about? (laughs) I thought that was a a good illustration of some of the things that you talk about in your history um, of the prosperity gospel. And I I wanted to ask you to share a little bit with us about that and your your history and, and then how that relates to what happened in the the new book. Sure. I mean, um, I got very interested in this very American uh, gospel. When I was about 18, I was uh, riding around on Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada's only fast road, and I saw what appeared to be a warehouse emptying of thousands of people, and I thought, that's not for us, that's for Americans. Um, When I learned that there was a pastor inside with spectacular hair who had been recently given a motorcycle by his parishioners for a new liturgical holiday called Pastor's Appreciation Day. And that he had ridden it around on stage, and I thought, that is for Americans. Um, So in my self-righteousness, I got curious, and because I am the child of a historian, I realized I love puzzles. So I got very interested in the idea that there was this gospel of health and wealth and divine favor, and that it was everywhere even among the cheese-eating Mennonites of Manitoba, from which I come. So I, um, I got very... I kind of just, as I was uh, telling them the other day, I, I sort of ruined my 20s just endlessly searching out megachurches and then creating spreadsheets and trying to figure out where they all were. So by the time I was 29, I had written the first history of the prosperity gospel to really get to know how people began to speak of faith, not as a hope or a trust, but as a spiritual power that people unleashed with their minds and their positive words. Um, And I'd gotten really good at it, um, understanding how performative cheerfulness and optimism and positive thinking has been woven into so many strands of American culture through what we often just think of as self-help to maybe more Pentecostal versions of it, like Joel Osteen or 99% of the books you'll find in cheap paperbacks at Target. And... um, And then I got really sick, and I couldn't quite figure out why, and I had these weird pains in my stomach, and I am a quite good narrator of my experience, I hoped, and I was just banging down every door to figure it out. And then one day I just got a call in my office that said that I had stage four cancer. And I was was so uh, taken apart. Because I realized that I was so, not just like sad and sad for my family, but I was almost like morally affronted. Like, why would this happen to me? And that like, what made me think I was so special after all? And I realized that I was so much more like the people that I had studied than I had thought. So I wrote that book to just try to, and other lies I've loved is the part I mean the most. Because like, there are so many delicious beliefs that I have clung to that I wanted to be more honest about and writing is the only way I know how to be honest. Amazing, that's beautiful. Elaine, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in religion, uh, the study of religion, 
and the, the super secret juicy stuff you found in these Gnostic Gospels. And I just want to uh, cue you on a few things that struck me, and you can omit anything that does not feel um, that it resonates okay. with you. That's a um, but I wanted to make sure that you included the part where uh, the name of a certain band that's arguably one of the best bands in the world, is related to the reason why you left uh, the first evangelical church that you attended and how you got to the evangelical church and uh, why the secret gospel of Thomas uh, pisses so many people off and is related in some ways to your nickname. So go ahead. That's a big order, Gina. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, my um, when I was growing up in, in California... Um, religion wasn't really a part of my family. It was, it was sort of, you know, culturally Protestant, but not, you wouldn't take it seriously. Um, my mother sometimes took my brother and me to a Methodist church, but my father had given it all up for Darwin. He was from, I some, told some of my friends, a, a ferociously Presbyterian family, and he hated it. So as soon as he found out about science, he just dropped it all. These stupid old folk tales would only appeal to people who were just ignorant. I mean, not people like us. So I loved Don't music and poetry and all these other things, but religion was just not part of the scene. Um, and then, well, I talk in the book about it. I was growing up in Palo Alto, and I thought it was the most boring town in the world. <laughs> a friend of mine said it was like growing up inside of a giant marshmallow. And that's how it felt. And, but I was invited to San Francisco one day, and I didn't care what it was for. I just wanted to get to San Francisco. I was 14. So we went to this massive meeting, and, and there were 18,000 people in Candlestick Park to see Billy Graham. I didn't know who that was, um, but I found out. This was a powerful preacher, and quite stunning at the time, and he said things that really surprised me. He, he's... He, he's he said things about America. I mean, I was brought up, you know, my grandparents are immigrants from Holland and Switzerland. So I thought this is the greatest country in the world and the highest moral standard and science is the most important thing in the world. And he was saying, but this country is pushing its brightest suns into um, building more nuclear weapons. And this is after American nuclear weapons had incinerated 100,000 people. And, and he talked about segrega segregation and slavery. And I was really stunned. And then it was all about massive music, 6,000 people singing all at once, 18,000 people. And, the, and he said, you could have, be born again and start all over and have a new family and just, hey, change everything. And it was irresistible. <laughs> so I, I was born again. It was great. Um, for about a year. <laughs> You know, it was a little club, and it was very... But it was... The great thing about it is that it was about the imagination. And and I read about it sort of like The Wizard of Oz when I was seven or eight. It was like, opened up another world, and I could live in that world. And, you know, those these religious cosmologies open up the imagination. And I loved that. But what happened... Yeah, well, you mentioned it. I'm not sure it would have, but... Um, in, <laughs> I had a group of um, odd friends in high school, and you know we all wanted to be artists, musicians, poets, 
painters, dan well, dancers, that was mine. And, and we hung around with weird people. And one of them was Jerry Garcia, because he was hanging out in Palo Alto. And we were high school students, and he was an amazing musician. And, um, and, and sort of, there were a lot of interesting parties with a range of different people. <laughs> but after one of them, uh, one of my closest friends who was 16, we were, as I said, high school students, was in a car with, with them, with Jerry Garcia and other people, and, and going 100 miles an hour, and it crashed. And he was killed in the accident. My friend was. And Garcia was thrown out the front windshield. And Alan Trist, his, his friend, was almost killed as well. And I, we were all dumbfounded and shocked, you know, because this is a very vivid, remarkable young man who was suddenly dead. And so I went back to this church expecting to find some kind of empathy. And they said, oh, that's terrible. Was he born again? And I said, no, he was Jewish. And they said, well, then he's in hell. And, and I thought, you know, wasn't Jesus Jewish? I've, really, it was shocking to me. So I was really stunned, and I just walked out of there. I never went back. And years later, I thought, wait a minute, what hit me? I mean, was it Christianity? Was it religion? What was it that seemed so powerful about all that? I mean, and how did this movement start anyway? So I went off to try to find out. I went to a school that wasn't religious and tried to find out what do we know about Jesus? And then my professors had all these secret gospels that we'd never heard of. And in one of them, it, that's the Gospel of Thomas. You asked about it. I can't help it. I always have to say this. You, if you, Many of you know these. I, it says, Jesus said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I thought, well, you, you don't have to believe that. It just happens to be true. And I was taking it psychologically, but the, the text is also a spiritual path. And I love these texts. And they were all banned by the bishops and burned and destroyed. Um, but they're... They're now back. <laughs> thanks, thanks in part, a uh, large part to you. And um, the Gospel of Thomas from when we were speaking was the one that struck me the most in the sense of um, not only that amazing quote that you shared, but the idea that God is part of you in a sense that you don't need to necessarily go through the church. And those are the things that I think ruffled some feathers in the, uh, the fourth century, is that right? Well, the bishops didn't like it because it just suggests that that um, that the divine light is manifest in everything that's created, that that everything here comes from some mysterious source, and all of us uh, are connected with it because we're created in the image of that energy, which is pictured as light. Um, and so, it suggests that everyone has access to that source because we have a connection internally if we look for it. And the bishops, of course, didn't like that because it meant you didn't need Jesus and you didn't need churches and you didn't need any of that to discover it. That could be disruptive to the establishment. It was. <laughs> when, you, when you shared the quote, um, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And you shared that with us at lunch yesterday. It really made me think about this book that you've written, Why Religion? Um, 
you had said it, it has taken this long to be able to, to share these stories. Um, will you share just a little bit about the book and the, the personal? Yeah, I mean, the, the theme of the book, as you know, I mean, both of us teach the history of religion, but the question why religion is really always, you know, coming from a family where, where religion was just not part of it, not part of the discourse, why is it still around in the 21st century? You know? Why would it be? I mean, we have science, we have so much else, we have psychology, who needs it? So that's been a kind of programmatic question of the work I do. And I think it has to do with many things, but, and I love it, this, this investigation. So that's what the book is about. But also there were things that I couldn't think about or write about for 25 years. And many people here know about that, uh, that my husband and I came here for the Aspen Center for Physics when we first got married uh, in the 1970s. And, um, and then our son died when he was six of an extremely rare disease. And then here, on, he went hiking on Pyramid Peak with one of his doctoral students and, and fell and died um, a year after that. And these were things that just went into a black hole. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't engage them because it was just overwhelming. And besides, after our son died, we'd adopted two babies. So suddenly I had two babies and no husband and no, not our child, not our biological child. And I don't know how you go on then, you know, or, or do you want to? I wasn't sure at all. Um, and so I'm just amazed that I had to finally allow those things to come forth because they don't go away, you know, the things you hide. And engage them again, and I could only do it 25 years later, which is recent. <laughs> and... Um, and that's been quite powerful, but it also weaves into the work, you know. I realize that my work on the study of religion is a kind of yoga that I, that I work with and play with and, and argue with and engage imaginatively. And it really works on me when I work on it. And so the book is about the weaving of those two. I love that you brought yoga into it personally. <laughs> Always. <laughs> that's where we met. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to um, just notice when Kate was sharing a little earlier, when you mentioned the stage four cancer diagnosis, I don't know if you felt it, but I felt in this room this uh, intense kind of quiet and this like deep breath that I felt collectively from all of you. And the truth is, you know, bad things happen to good people all the time. And we discussed that a little bit, and especially based on, on your uh, history uh, with the prosperity gospel. It's like you can think yourself well, and you know this is health and wealth. If you need to do all the right things, and you know you get these rewards. I I think of it like the Santa Claus gospel. I was like, you know, if you're good, you're gonna get what you want, and we know that that is bull, baloney. But in some ways, like you shared, we still believe in it in some yeah. way. I just want to share a quote that um, is from your New York Times article. It was one of the, the, I think, the precursor to this book, where you wrote an article for the, the New York Times in the early stages of this cancer diagnosis. You're like, you don't know what I'm going to pick, but don't worry. It's, it's a good no, one. I'm just, I'm just laughing because writing it at the time was such a terrible idea. No, <laughs> it's because that's why you're here right now. <laughs> the New York Times article created this just 
rush, I guess your email was printed at the bottom, and so everybody who's anybody and their grandma decided to write to you and tell you uh, some advice about how to deal with cancer and you know why you might have gotten it, maybe what you had done, and you know lots of things about eating kale and all the things that you're not really you don't want to say to people. And we're going to talk more about that at the end, so you don't do what I did when I met Kate and said one of the cardinal wrong things, and then then she gracefully coached me out of it and it was intensely awkward and ironic and I'm glad that we're friends so we're friends right yeah okay it was it was bad okay so she writes uh, my life is now a three-month lethargy every 90 days I am pumped full of dye read by machines and scrutinized to find out whether I get another 90 days to live This hopscotch timeline means I have to make very calculated decisions about how I spend my time, what I should care about, what matters if everything hangs in the balance. Is that the reality that you're living with now, still? Um, Yeah, I'm in such a weird spot, I guess, because, uh, I mean, thankfully, um, immunotherapy is creating new paradigms for cancer treatment, but it's... uh, People's minds normally fall on the, a, a kind of chemotherapy paradigm where if you're not actively getting treatment, then you're either regressing or you're kind of at a wait and see. And with immunotherapy, you get treatment, and then there's a cohort of people in front of you when everyone kind of smiles vaguely at you and then ushers you out the door and says, like, I'll see you in a little bit. And you're like, cool, I'll be reading the scientific journals until then. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm in a similar kind of wait and see pattern um, where... I, my brain operates on two tracks simultaneously. One, I, that I am positive that I will outlive everyone like a beautiful cyborg. Um, and then the other, that I'm sure I'm going to die and that I have to make the right choices and that every decision I make, every trip I take, every project I think about starting, I have to imagine whether I can finish it and whether it'll be worth it. And operating on those two tracks makes me exhausted. Because um, I believe both to be simultaneously true at any given moment. Um, but it did make, um, I was just thinking, Elaine, of your comments about how long it took for writing to surface in you about this personal stuff. And I, I don't think, frankly, I would have written a memoir if I hadn't been convinced of that one track that I was, that I was going to have to reckon with what my life had meant. Because, I don't know, writing is so awkward. It's... Um, it's horrible to do, as you know. Um, and then the result is that people know things about you that you are not even sure you want to know about yourself. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I, it is, I was so overwhelmed by watching my mind toggle between these two tracks all the time and then, and then realizing how hard it was to be honest at all, how much we lie to the people we love um, because we love them. I mean, your job as a parent is mostly to lie to your children. Like, no, you're great at coloring. (laughs) I mean, my kid just didn't get into a school recently because he didn't use scissors with ease. And I was like, you're going to be awesome. I believe in you. Um, And then we we lie to our partners and the people we love. Um, I mean, my mom said really so delicately the other day... um, Kate, my love for you means I have only given you truth 
in the tiniest morsels. And you can tell that she's been so, like, in that awkward give and take of fear and love. And we only give each other little bits. And, but, yeah. you know, I think that toggling is, is really what the reality of our lives, all of us. I mean, but, you know, what startled me so much with my husband's death, which was suddenly totally unpredictable and yes. out of nowhere, is that it, one of the great shocks of it out of many is how vulnerable we are. I mean, just like that. It was a perfectly beautiful day, and everything was fine, and suddenly that person's not there. And many people here, we, we've had that experience. It's not only... That is the reality, but most of us can hide from it most of the time. Yeah, and that feeling of precarity. I guess the part that I, I didn't know until it happened to me was how many times, like if everyone has befores and afters, that everyone wants me to say that after is always better. And that, that, that equivalency is always going to be a very neat math between the things we suffer and the lessons we learn. And I have been genuinely horrified by by how prescriptive all of that is on people who've, any person who's had something take their life apart. So you feel that people are expecting you to act a certain way? How are you supposed to act that you hate to act? I mean, partly it's gender, where we are so cheerful and so grateful for every opportunity. Um, so That was well done. Yes, some of it is just that, I'm sure. Um, so. No, I love it. No, I'm sorry. No, you're sorry. Um, yeah, some of it's that. Um, some of it is um, a little bit of the sort of um, so close to the edge of death, now you must have all of the answers. Like, I've had people ask me what heaven is like repeatedly. Like, Tell you know. later. <laughs> I'll let you know when I get there. Uh, uh, but mostly it's the... Um, because I had this feeling before, like I, I felt like my life was obvious. I felt like my life was a durable thing. And then when I, don't, when I no longer have that because of precarity, I do feel like sometimes the way people approach people like me is like we're through plexiglass and you want to see it oh, yeah. but not feel like there's ever not a barrier between us just in case we could be the same. And the truth is we're all the same, right? We're all going to trade places at one point or another. That's why we're naturally fragile. We need each other. But that's been really hard to feel like I'm relegated to a space that no one wants to live too close to. Yeah, oh, I felt, Sorry about that. I <laughs> that <was a> <laughs> sorry, Elaine, go ahead. No, I felt stigmatized when, when two things happen and you just think, that just can't happen. I mean, you feel yes. very isolated. Yes. And... And the other thing is, especially I found with the loss of a child, you feel guilty because your job as a parent is to keep a child alive. That's pretty minimal, right? That's yes. more important than getting into the right school. Um, and if you can't do that, you fail. Yes. And you really feel that way. And, and I had to struggle a lot with that sense of guilt because it's a fantasy yes. that we have control over any of our own lives children's lives or anything else practically but it's a very deep part of the culture it's deeply steeped in biblical stories right 
I mean, I was reading the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Um, when David had had the, the husband of Bathsheba killed so that he could, um, he could get together with this beautiful woman. And, uh, and they had a baby. And it says, and the Lord struck the baby and killed the baby because of their sin. So you know that if the baby dies, it's because you did something wrong. And, I mean, you don't think that way. But this isn't about thinking. These religious traditions are not, see, I don't think it's about what do you believe, you know, or six impossible things you believe before breakfast, or any creed. It's mostly about what you imagine, and how you fantasize, and how you feel. It's mostly emotional. And so this, this sense of guilt, it's not rational, but I certainly felt it, and had to fight with it, until I realized, and I'll stop in this one, that I'd rather feel guilty than to feel the real thing. Oh, and you think, well, what is the real thing? Oh. The real thing was, I had nothing, there was nothing I could do. And I'd almost realized, I can't believe it, I'd rather feel I had input yeah. on, on our beloved son's life than to think I had none. Yeah. Even negative impact would yes. be better, yeah. right? So when somebody dies and you think, why did I let him go on that plane trip? Or why, did, why, did I, why didn't I do this? Or why didn't I? Yeah. You know, you fantasize that you're guilty when you're not at all. Because mm. anything you did was, mm. was, was not causing that person's mm. uh, loss. But that is the fantasy. And we prefer it to the recognition that we're really very helpless when it comes to fundamental things like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that sounds exactly right to me. We want that little bit of traction down to that last little moment of feeling like I have, I mean, like watching me go into a surgery is hysterical because I am desperate for any moment where I just needed that little bit of like, no, 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 just put the mask on like this. And I'm usually a really easygoing person, but I am like fighting. Oh my gosh, when I had my... Um, port surgery, this last <laughs> surgery I had, apparently I was so desperate to have agency that even though I was um, with the sort of, in a, that lightly hallucinogenic state where they keep you mildly awake, you're supposed to fall asleep. You are supposed to stop talking. I talked for an hour and a half. <laughs> And I just, doing what I normally do, which is aggressively small talking, and I could hear myself the third time I said to the surgeon, like, no, where are you from? <laughs> and they're, they're just like, Albuquerque, okay. <laughs> just like trying to lightly muffle my face. But like, and when I woke up on my way out, then the, the nurse said to my husband, um, I mean, the second, the second we were past the dangerous point, you could feel Kate relax like she knew there was, there was such a desperate attempt to maintain control. And I think, wow, even if I can do that even while lightly unconscious, I guess we can all do that in any circumstance. You're tough, I can tell. <laughs> It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. The public's trust in democratic institutions like the media is crumbling. Charlie Firestone leads the Aspen Institute's Communications and Society program. He says misinformation, disinformation, fake news, and deep political divides have led to a crisis. Losing trust in your government, in your system, in who can run the government, in who the other is, 
uh, is really a, a recipe for disaster. His program partnered with the Knight Foundation to come up with solutions to rebuild trust and strengthen democracy. Hear about their suggestions for newsrooms, tech companies, and the public in our sister podcast, Aspen Insight. Just search Aspen Insight in your podcast player. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Gina Murdoch. The idea of the loss of control is really prevalent in both of your stories that you share. And I know that you both were talking a little bit uh, yesterday also about the anger that came forward. And I just want you to share about that and in some way dehumanize these experiences. I think it's so accurate to say sometimes we don't know what to do when someone is suffering in a, you know, a cancer diagnosis such as you have, or how do we sit with you, Elaine, after hearing that your, you know, your son has died and then your, your husband falls. Like, it takes a lot of bravery, I think, and courage to be with people that are experiencing that. And therefore, you know, all these awkward things happen, which you write about so beautifully and hysterically in your book. And it's, we all do it because, as you said, Elaine, it's part of the culture. Everything happens for a reason. It just slips out sometimes. Or, you know, you can share maybe what the police officer said when he came to your door. And, and it's, it's, it's horrific, but you, I, I understand why we do it. It's like you said, we just need a little distance. Like, this is, whoa, this is real. This is making me scared. Well... Yeah, and these cultures, these religious cultures, can be very perverse in a way. You know, the police officer who came up to the house said, in his sort of console the widow voice, um, you know, God never gives us more than we can handle. And I thought, oh, so this is a gift from God? And how do you know what I can handle anyway? I mean, I didn't say a word. I just wrenched the door off its handles. And stand up. Show them how big you are. This is impressive. <laughs> but there is, there is anger. There is rage. And is it, or is yeah. it, is it, is it well, toward it God? That. Is it the it circumstance? Isn't, it or? isn't that. It's just the, the perversity of, 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 of that thought, you know, um, or the way these traditions can can twist people up. I mean, you know, if you study the history of religion, it's all about human culture. And these are powerful influences in the way we feel. And some of them are, are helpful and powerful and nurturing. And I love them. And some of them are, are, are wrong. And they control us and confine us and lie. Yeah, and I think right now we're in kind of one of the high high watermarks of of positivity, and positivity culture can have its own stranglehold when it can't account for a variety of human experiences. So when the first impulse for people, I mean, like I, I tried to think of them in categories just because I um, think it's more fun to make lists and uh, ragefully write them in a chemo session. Um, because you'll get it even from the nurse, where they're because they, you know they're supposed to ask you like name, you know rate your pain on a scale from one to ten, and then I'd be like seven, which was just right below childbirth and right above a baseball bat to the head, and uh, and they'd be like, well, I do find that people who are optimistic get better outcomes, and I'm like, well, you did just ask me to numerically evaluate my pain, and I answered your question, Trina. Um, so there's. There's an attempt to give you a gift. Um, anyone who's starting a sentence with at least doesn't love you and can't 
ever love you anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I tried to report like a medical error. Like I had had this awful experience. I've, I've had like kind of a rough time with my medical care and I had had a scan terribly misread to the point where they said, you will surely die. Uh, after I had been told I would not uh, die immediately. So I was surprised, um, <laughs> as one might be. And, um, and then I solved the medical mystery myself using Google. And, uh, and I tried to report said error, and, uh, and the first thing out of their mouth was like, well, at least you're here now. <laughs> well, okay, where, where is all of the lawyers in the world? And how can they get here fast enough? Um, yeah, I just, I'm kind of blown away, and I, I think part of it is, um, like you can even hear it in the cadence of how people um, comfort somebody. Like, they always go for the initial question, like, how is this Marcus Mark, which is the sad question. And then you try to answer, like, actually, everyone died of dysentery, right? Like, you have the response. And then, and they're like, well, sing a sex, It doesn't matter what they're saying. It's the, like, bailing out of the conversation voice. And it's just because it's so hard to stay at that register, and people think they need to give an answer. And in truth, they just, they just need you to hold the space for a moment. So you can just... Be human for one second without fixing it. And I love every person who just lovingly gave me novelty socks or like a casserole or something just to say, like, you can be human for at least five to ten. I mean, that, the, the practicality of what you wrote at the end of your book, which is basically what never to say to somebody, and then you also give the gift of what are some things that are helpful. And uh, it's really helpful. And it's really worth reading. The favorite one I had is to give you a hug, you know, and or, or a hand where it's like people think you have cancer, maybe they don't want to touch you, or, you know, you both had written about feeling isolated in, at some point, um, which I can imagine. Um, I'm aware of the time, and I'm just going to make a little transition that's a little awkward, but I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> just to let you all know, we're going to take some Q&A here at the end, um, so to ready yourselves. So um, think about those questions. Is there anything, I wanted to just give you both an opportunity to ask each other a question. Um, we didn't get as much into the writing, uh, being that this is a writer's audience, if there's anything there about the craft. Um, but you know, I know you both know of each other, but don't really know each other, and it's a really wonderful opportunity. So what is, you know, Kate, what's one thing you'd, we'd love to ask Elaine? And, I'd and love then, to ask a writer's question, if you don't mind. Oh, what, what are your best, disciplines of writing. You have written a ridiculous number of books and pages. So how do you, I mean, you can't feel inspired every day. So how do you get in a space where you can create? The first thing is you have to write a terrible first draft. You have to be willing to write a terrible first draft or you won't write anything. So that I do. And then I write over and over and over. You know, it's, this book took seven years. I probably wrote a thousand pages and there's about 160 there. So I write over and over and over because, I don't know, it takes a long time to get, to get, you know, you write to get, you write, I feel. You don't write about what you know. They say write about what you know. You write about what you don't know. You write about a dilemma, a question, a struggle you have, and, and you write to find out mm -hmm. how it works, mm -hmm. you know? And to discover almost unconscious parts of how you're understanding it. So it's a, it's a process of discovery. I just love that. And I think it's, 
It's a very liberating act. I do love it. I mean, this book also, when I finished it, I just thought, you know, I didn't want to write about horrible things happening simply. I mean, I had to put some of those in because that was part of the story. But I wanted to write about just being amazed that we can live through things that we think we couldn't live through. I mean, there, how do you live with the uncertainties that, that, that some kind of medical diagnosis presents? How do you live with things that you, you think you just, well, if that ever happened, I just wouldn't want to go on? That's not true. I bet there are many people here who have gone through things they think they couldn't endure, and we do. And I think that's marvelous. So I wondered about the difference between before you were writing this and after. I, what I loved about the book is that you just went dashing into the middle, you know? I mean, you weren't taking any of the pieties or any of the things that, that struck you wrong, the resonances that just didn't fit and weren't true. So you, you sort of you go for the jugular. How did you feel after you wrote that? Because it was a very different kind of writing than that sort of like exploratory historical writing. Yes. Where I know how to kind of write to untangle, you know, and then you find crisper words and then you keep them and then you make a lexicon and you're so happy. Um, this was, um, I wrote it, I wrote it very quickly. I wrote the whole book in about a month and a half, mostly crying into a laptop, which I worried would short circuit because of my many tears. Um, but I, the, what, the way I would picture it is I could feel that there was like a thought on the edge of something that I just didn't, I couldn't land on because it hurt too much. Yeah. It was usually something like so beautiful or so absurd or so painful. And I had to write my way into it, like running off a cliff kind of thing. And so I could, I could, I wrote until I got to it, until I could just sort of lightly uh, put the blade between my own ribs, and then I was like, and that was that. <laughs> so, and then I would write kind of an episode. So I could do about three of those a day before I was like, and we're done. Um, then sounds I sounds like courage <laughs> and carbs I mean, going. Yeah. In. Thanks. So much. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Courage and carbs. Yeah. Uh, we'd like to take a few questions from the audience. Hi, my name is Allison, and I read both of your books in early January and decided I was going to come out from Maryland to hear you both talk together. Wow. <laughs> really glad Thank I did. you. Um, so um, I want to uh, return to the title of Kate's book. Um, my husband died in an accident about three years ago, and he was one who always believed that everything happens for a reason. And so I think I may be the only person in the world who's experienced a tragedy and is actually consoled by that concept because it came from him. And I've, I've been sort of on this quest to reconcile his death with his belief. And I interpreted it at the time, um, saying to everyone who was so shocked and saddened by his death um, that you know, he had always loved animals, we had always worked together for animals, and so now take a step in your own life in honor of him and you know, show more compassion for animals. That was the, the, the reason that he had died, kind of, you know, that he was some sort of martyr <laughs> making people, inspiring people to take this step. Um, obviously, I've been thinking more about this as time goes on, and your, both of your books made me think a lot about this. And um, uh, I think, Elaine, you talked about 
uh, it's not God cre- laying little breadcrumbs down on the floor for you to find. Rather, it's survivors creating meaning. And so I guess my question is, um, you know, is there anything in your either of your minds to that notion of, you know, adversity being part of God's plan, or is it all just the, the you know prosperity gospel saying good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. <laughs> I, I'd like to speak to that because um, I think there's it's understandable why people would say that, why he might say that, why many people do. Um, I would not myself say that's the reason for that accident. But what I wrote about is that you don't find meaning. It's just not there. Um, you can create it. And for you to say, well, he loved animals, and so in his honor, take care of what he cared about. You know, share, my, share his passion and spread it and do things that matter. Now, that's what I meant by creating meaning. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense. That's like mothers against drunk driving or, or people you know, people against gun violence when they've lost people or been horrified by the, you know, the, the, the gun violence, especially in schools and so forth. So I think we, we, we make, we create meaning. And I think that's very important, uh, very powerful, actually. I'm, well, thank you for coming, and I'm really honored you'd share that with us. Um, I'd like maybe a slightly different angle in, because I think I do believe in discovery, like that there, there's something uncreated. Um, but I, I try to do it this way. I, I do believe that there can be beauty in the darkness, and I think we both believe that, that we can find incredible riches in the midst of an unthinkable terror. Um, and I do, what I'm worried about is that kind of equivalency in which people need everyone's pain to neatly add up to somebody's lesson or, or triumph. And then that it places a great burden of, of, of gratitude and meaning-making on you um, to then not be able to say, sometimes I feel like I've lost more than I've gained. And that's a hard thing, I think, for us to carry when we miss things we had before and loved them so very much. Um, I do think I have discovered things about, you know, I'm like kind of a Jesus-y type, so like about what I learned about God in Jesus' suffering and how maybe part of suffering is how we learn to be human and we learn our frailty and our contingency in those moments. So I try to be really grateful for that. I just always worry about saying it too loudly until someone's like, see, you learned a lesson. Congratulations. Um, so that's why I want to find it and discover it. I just don't want it like heaped on me, if that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for asking that question. Just stand up so they can find you. I experienced a loss this last January, and I happened to be with people in a foreign place, um, who were in, immensely loving and took me immediately into ritual. And it changed everything about the loss, I think. And I wonder if you, you know, knowing about Christianity and Judaism and everything, Buddhism, all the things you know about um, you, Elaine, what kind of ritual? I, if I'd been in America, I don't think I would have been as happy. Um, the people around, surrounding me were full of love, and the ritual was remarkable. 
these traditions, I was thinking of Clifford Geertz, the anthropologist, who wrote a wonderful essay called Religion as Cultural System. And he said, he said the, 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 the function of religion is to make suffering sufferable. And he was talking about funeral rituals. And, and I think those are very important. And also celebratory rituals. You know, I love them. I found them very important. And we also created our own rituals. I wrote about um, after our son died, we went back to the California where we spent the summers in a beautiful pasture, li living in a, a cabin in the woods with Arabian horses out in the field, beautiful horses. And it was just full of redwoods. That's where they shot Star Wars, I think. That <laughs> was beautiful. And, and we went to, I went to the, what we call the jewel store which was where my son liked to, we, we'd go to this bead store and you could buy diamonds and rubies and emeralds and pearls and all kinds of jewels, gold. And, and we had played a lot of games with the jewels. So I bought a whole bag of little jewels and we all took some and left them in the places where we had been with him. And that, that was a personal ritual in addition to the formal rituals. The monks at the Trappist Monastery you know, they came to the service here at the Episcopal Church, um, and, and people there spoke. But they, they, they said a, a, a mass for my husband who would have, I was going to say he would have been horrified. I don't think he would have been horrified. Um, but it wasn't his thing. But I did deeply appreciate it. And, and, then, and then we can make our own rituals, too. Um, how about you? Well, the hospital is conveniently attached, basically, to the Divinity School. And that was probably the best part about suffering around so many pastors. At which point, like, one of the doctors talked to me about abusing chaplaincy privileges. Because, like, everybody popped on their clerical call at, like, mosey on hour over at whatever hours they wanted. But, like, at some point, I had so much um, anointing oil on my forehead that I had an acne-shaped cross. <laughs> and, like, it was... I, it carried me through, like their hands on my head and the prayers and the way that it just, it created a rhythm in which me and the people around me could suffer and create new language for it. It was, it was the richest part of that tough time. Sort of changing the topic more to the writing side. Um, okay. You wrote a book in a month. You wrote a book in seven years. The terrible first draft... If we read your first draft, would we relate it to the finished product? And writing a book in a month, now that it's out, published, do you think, oh gosh, why didn't I change that? I mean, how does the writing style work with that type of a timeline? I mean, in my case, I tried to use, well, had to use, not tried to, just used urgency uh, to my advantage. Um, because honestly, I never would have been brave enough to write a book if I had thought I had all kinds of time. Uh, I do think writing requires a certain existential courage, and mine, my hand was forced, and other people, they have to summon it. Um, but I think part of it is deciding that there is um, something worth the temporary suffering that will that will reflect back to you something you can learn later. So I actually end up using my book as kind of a time capsule for me of exactly how my brain was processing my worst moments. But the best part of it was that it gave me courage 
And then I had a ruthless editor that I trusted to say things that made me very upset when I saw the, <laughs> the, the copy edited stuff, um, especially because there were thoughts I couldn't bring myself to say. And, and she would write in the margin, I'm wondering if there's more you need to say here. And I was like, screw you, Hillary. No one needs to say anymore. Um, but what it was is learning to harness courage and then, learning, and, then, and then borrowing someone else's discipline when you can't mentally be as disciplined as you need to be. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, writing a terrible first draft, it's just because um, writing is hard. <laughs> it's also very pleasurable, too. And um, for me, it takes a lot of time to, to, to get the clarity that I love. So I just have to do it over and over. Let's take one more question. Another Thank you all for this so much. And um, you both teach at really elite academic institutions. And I was just curious about what your students are like these days and what they believe in. Danielle, people ask about, you know, what are, what are Princeton students like these days? This is somebody who graduated 30 years ago. They're great. I think they're just amazing. I'm amazed by them. The undergraduates and the graduate students, I just, I feel so lucky to have great students. And um, we just taught, a, I caught a tour, course called Jesus and Buddha with a colleague who didn't know anything about Christianity, and I didn't know anything about Buddhism except compassion and meditation, you know. And, and so we decided to teach together, and we taught a course called Jesus and Buddha, and there were 225 students, and, and we took the life of the founder as the frame, and we compared these very different figures, and it was really fun. I don't, there's no way to generalize about these students at all. They're all so different. They're from all over the place, and they have such different experiences. Um, it's just great to be around them. Oh, now mine's going to be a bit of a bummer then. Um, so, because I'm like in a weird spot because we're um, we're teaching. Uh, people who will lead uh, religious communities, nonprofit workers, or often people in um, paid-to-care professions, those will go into social work or nursing sometimes in medicine. And uh, part of what we're struggling with is, is two things. One, a decline in faith in organizations, which means that they're being, they're, they're being sent out into the world to lead when it's no longer obvious that a professional status earns them any cultural credibility. So they have to learn that their authenticity has to be mirrored with a kind of whole life integration that it might not have been required 20 years ago. The other is that um, in some of these shinier professions, like the doctors that we have for like theology and medicine and culture program that we have, uh, I mean, they spiking suicide rates is among doctors is a real concern for us, frankly, because um, people are asked to existentially bear the weight of so much pain and suffering, and yet don't always know how to integrate this pain into their whole life practice. So, like, we had this horrible study we did of pastors. This is how awesome my school is. We were like, hey, Methodists mostly, we love you. What are you guys like? What's your lives like? Five to ten years. And we tracked them because we're great at that because we're the main line. Uh, we mostly tracked their increasing depression and um, obesity rates. 
to the point where their health insurance premiums went up <laughs> because we had so carefully documented it. Um, so, <laughs> uh, the concern we have is um, how do we teach people to not just then be critical thinkers, uh, which we care about, but to um, bear up under these professions of compassion. And I'm concerned that our culture doesn't have enough language to give them the tools they need. But that's, the, that's you know, teaching at a divinity school, people who come with religious convictions or, or you know, intentions and struggle with them. And I think it's really hard to struggle with them in the 21st century anyway. Um, I mean, that's why it's fun for me to teach it because my students don't come with that expectation um, or the burden of thinking they either have to mean it or something like that. That's why I prefer secular institutions. <laughs> uh, please join me in thanking Elaine and Kate for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Elaine Pagels is a MacArthur genius and was awarded the National Humanities Medal. Her latest book is Why Religion? A Personal Story. Kate Bowler is an associate professor at Duke Divinity School. Her latest book, The Preacher's Wife, Women and Power in American Mega Ministry, is due out this summer. They spoke with Gina Murdoch, who, along with her husband Jerry, founded the Mind, Body, Spirit series at the Aspen Institute. Their discussion was held February 26, 2019 as part of Winter Words, an author series held by Aspen Words. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Words team includes Adrian Brodeur, Carolyn Torrey, Marie Chan, Elizabeth Nix, and Ellie Scott. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.